0: We all know that I love making and recording my own podcast. Loudmouth is my heart and soul. But what's even more fun is that it's easy to do. And guess what? You can do one too. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute the podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can make money from it with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast right there in one place for free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Loud Mouth Podcast, the show about everything and nothing all at once. I'm your host, the one and only host, Madison Hadler. Hello. Happy Wednesday. Once again, we've made it to another Wednesday. Good job for making it through. Um, I told you guys last week, I think it was, that I've been trying to record early and be a little bit better about that. Well, Today is not one of those days. I am recording day of, um, unfortunately, but that's okay. I actually ended my job, well, full-time job at Flourish, the nonprofit that I worked for yesterday. Today is my little break, and then tomorrow I go into working for the law firm. Um, So it's just a whirlwind right now, so I'm a little bit behind on loudmouth stuff, but that's okay because we're here together and it doesn't really matter, now does it? It um, doesn't really change the topic either because we're going to be talking about something that affects us all the time. And if you have seen any of my Instagram at all, and if you haven't, shameless plug, go follow me at Pod. I'm definitely the most active on there. But if you've seen any of my Instagram stories at all or anything like that, then you probably are well aware that my roommates and I are trying to move. So if you don't know, I live with two other people, a couple my best friend from college and her boyfriend who is now my friend as well but we also have two cats and a dog and so the most annoying thing about this process is finding a house that's really really cute looking at it online being like oh my god that would be perfect and then you scroll down and you see the fucking thing that says no pets allowed like so dumb and actually yesterday when i was searching for places i kept finding places with no cats it was like all It's like, dogs are fine, but no cats, which is just crazy. And I think pet restrictions and pet rents are insane, but that's another topic. But it's crazy trying to find a home. It is a fucking whirlwind. And so I end up having like three texts a day from random ass snappers to try and work out a house tour in between the schedule of working a normal routine and also the landlord's schedule and just seeing so many houses that would be okay if landlords actually cared about keeping up with the house and cared about their job (laughs) Um, if it even is their only job because most of the time it's not it's just something that they do to collect more money and most of the time it's people that don't even live in the state or anything of that sort Finding a house is one of the most exhausting things that we have to go through in adult life. I honestly chalk it up a, like, to the same amount as it is of finding a job. Um, finding a job feels a little more personal because it's just you doing it. But finding a house, swear to God, right up there. It's so exhausting and you just have to do it over and over again until you decide that you want to settle down and buy a house or... <clears throat> until you find a house that you can rent for a while or rent to own or whatever it is especially because you know that you are going to be paying and overpaying for services that aren't even worth it and big renting companies that don't even ever come by the house so not only are you judging the house on what it looks like you're also judging the landlord that you're meeting the people that you're meeting are they wearing a mask when i go see them are they on time everything like that which leads us into what we are talking about today So, after texting with so many landlords and realtors and trying to figure out the house process, I grew curious into how this even became a profession in the first place, or a way to earn extra income. So, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the history of landlording, of renting, of owning, things like that. Um, And we're going to learn how the fuck these schemy bastards got to be the way that they are. So. Let's get into it. In twenty fifteen, studies estimated that US renters paid five. 135 billion dollars to landlords and residential rents. I could not find a number from 2021 or 2020 even. So t- 2015 is our latest number that I have, but still 535 billion dollars was paid to landlords. So I can only imagine with inflation and everything like that 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 has gone up exponentially. Before the modern ideas of private property arose alongside the full development of capitalism in the 18th century, social and economic life in medieval Europe was organized within a system that today is known as feudalism. So you may have heard of this in your history classes, but we're going to talk a little bit more of how it affects renting and how it affects the way that we treat the land ownership now. So feudalism was the dominant social system in medieval Europe in which people worked and fought for nobles who gave them protection and the use of land in return. Under feudalism, the central focus of economic activity was agriculture which needs land for production. This made landholding the most important form of wealth in a feudal society. Although feudalism can appear in different forms, In feudal England, the land belonged to a king who gave it to the nobility in return for their military service. This allowed them to rule over their estates in exchange for pledges to provide knights or soldiers for the king's military. So, the king, the ultimate landlord, I guess, gave land to the nobility. But they had a promise that they would recruit and or be in the military service themselves themselves um, in order to stay on these lands. So what they would do is go out and recruit knights and whoever it is and let them stay on this land in order, as long as they provide military service. So their payment wasn't in the form of quiche, which is what we do now. It was in the form of military service, which honestly sounds 5 million times worse. But still, that's kind of the, the stretch that we're going for here. So in turn, the quote-unquote lords of these estates, none of whom could possibly use so much land, leased parts of the land to their aristocratic peers and important allies, many of whom also sublet parts of their land, often for similar pledges of military aid, for rents, or as payment for services. So these nobles or quote-unquote lords have all this all this land, and they're trying to recruit knights to live on the land to. in the military service but they also have so much land that they're like okay there's no way that I can recruit this many people so they decide to basically loan it out or lend it out to their aristocratic elite people for no payment or they can take the land and then sublease it out even further so it's just this big complex web of owning land and subleasing it and anything like that but those other people or the people that aren't being you know filled by knights or people that w- are wanting to be in the military can't stay on the land for a fee or as a payment of services or whatever it is just kind of depends on the lord itself so vassals were the tenants of the nobles who were considered to be the lords of their subtenants so vassals was kind of that word for what i am now or somebody who is renting a house and living in a rented house altogether such arrangements added up to a form of a kind of military-agrarian complex that reinforced the king's plan or the king's um, regime's ability to control land through a complex bureaucracy of landholders and landlords that enforced the rigid hierarchy of feudal society. So, we're not really off to a great start now, are we? But are we really surprised at all? Of course, these have, you know, questionable ethics and moral backgrounds because look at where landlords got to be today. Um, not everything becomes kind of evil overnight. It takes a lot of time, and especially when it's with land or some big system, it takes a lot of government. And practice to instill it. So basically the king sets up this super complex system of like, okay, I'm only going li- to give land to these few people. And then they can decide what they want to do with the land. But they have to promise me certain amount of servants. Or a serv- certain amount of service, not servants, I guess. Um, so it's just this big this big web that feeds into the king, basically. And kind of keeps this control, keeps this um, land-owning to the nobility or to the people who can't afford it and that kind of stuff. So while the nobles and the warlords and other prestigious people were holding land, it was the peasants who ended up doing all the work for it. So few peasants actually had their own land, which I guess we're not really surprised. And many took the name of serfs who were legally prohibited from leaving the land they cultivated without their lord's permission due to laws dating back to the Roman Empire. So I'm sure we have learned about serfs at one point of the time in a time kind of, not kind of, it was like slavery in the feudal society. It wasn't limited to um, ethnicity or anything of that considering this was in Europe. It was probably mostly white people, but you never know. There could be a mix in between there, but serfs were really just peasants. They were people um, that were in the very lower class, not very deemed highly of, didn't have a lot of money, um, things like that. So they would work on these lands, they would cultivate the land, they would um, do farming or whatever the land could do for the lords in service for staying on the land, which I'm pretty sure, not even I'm pretty sure, I know there was a few ethical questions in there just like, I'm not even gonna say just like with slavery because slavery was worse, um based off race and things like that but serfism was like kind of the i the first slavery and the first kind of fucked up tenant system that we really 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 had um because even though nobilities were paying for the land and serfs were staying on the land it was really this peasant class that ended up doing most of the work and keeping the feudal system alive which as we know with capitalism today kind of the same idea <laughs> So, in most cases, serfs were bound to work the same land as their ancestors, which meant that serfs were essentially leased along with with the land by one landed lord to another. So, if a serf was, or if a person was born into serfdom, so their mom and dad were serfs on this certain land, to this certain landlord, or lord of the land, whatever you want to call it, and... Their parents end up passing or the landlord decides, okay, I'm going to give this land over to my friend over here. Well, that surf stays with that land and basically just goes to that next landlord and there is their boss. Um, so they weren't really people, more just kind of property. Since most were landless, landed lords demanded rents from peasants in exchange for their right to work on the soil often paid with daily labor or with a hefty part of the peasant's own harvest. So they could technically work on the land and not necessarily be tied to the landlord or not necessarily have to just work in order to stay on the land. They could sell their crops and pay the landlord back, or they could give them a share of their crops. But that was between serf and landed lord and was pretty few and far between just because a lot of serfs were kind of born into it and just kind of stuff with the traditions of the day. But the church didn't really like what was going on at the time and they actually called it usury at the time. So it was just another fancy word for lending, um, but they called it usury. And by the year of 1500, the leaseholds had become a common and lucrative way to circumvent the church's ban. So They kind of started banning this like serfdom idea, this idea that people own the land and were renting it out. But um, people found a way around it by creating leases and having leaseholds. And that was a way to kind of circumvent this idea that you needed to work for the land or you needed to give military service for the land. Now you could own a lease and just pay for the land uh, or pay the landlord for the land. The, practicing, the practice of transferring land in the form of leaseholds, which naturally included the feudal right to exploit the labor of serfs and extract rent from its tenants, is what forms the legal foundation for the leases that we see now and that exist across the world today. So the church kind of banned this idea and it ended up taking on a new form of leaseholding so that people wouldn't get banned by the church technically. It's only a little bit different. It's basically the same thing the whole time, except, um, I guess a little less exploity, but not really because you could still have a surf and you could still be a surf and you could still stay on the land and be exploited for your work. But it was just this new word, this new idea of like, now you have a lease. Now you quote unquote own part of the land, I suppose. But over the next few hundred hundreds of years, feudal leaseholds, as well as the land in general, were gradually privatized through acquisitions, settlement, and processes of enclosure pushed by governments that were also often led by the same wealthy lords. Um, again, are we surprised? Of course, the same lords that were owning and kind of capitalizing off this idea decided to make it a capitalist thing even more, and they decided to put on take off their feudalism hats, and put on the shiny new capitalist hats that we all know today. Um, So we know the past, and we know where this idea comes from. from The lords were kind of loving this power, so they made it bigger, they exploited more, and then they created this idea of owning the land, and somebody could still lease it out from you. But it doesn't really answer why they exist today and why they should even, why landlords should even still be entitled to payment today because really the craziest thing to me is that I'm like, this is fucking land. Like when I see empty lots of land and they're like, oh, you can buy this for however much. It's just so crazy to me that we just capitalize off of a world that we were off of the earth basically. But let's just make it clear that we are specifically, um, and especially in this portion of the podcast, kind of yelling more at the corporate landlords. Um, You know, the ones who don't even live in the same state and probably haven't stepped on the property in a year. I know there are a lot of people who, well, a, a good amount of people who do like their landlords who are more the mom and pop. They own this house. They bought the house, decided to move or wherever. So now they're leasing it out. And that's not who I'm specifically yelling at here. More yelling at the bigger landlords, people who own you know, a lot of properties and are just using it as investments um, or big investments, ways to gain capital. So it's just crazy really in general how much landlords can charge for a piece of land without nothing added or improved upon. So if a property is like kept up and looks nice, it makes way more sense to be paying a certain amount but most of the time it's just a shitty place that could look better with literally just a few fixed blinds not even kidding the other day I I posted this on my story but I went to go see a house and I was already kind of you know on the fence about it but I was like might as well see it It has a good amount of space um I was on the fence because it literally didn't have a fence and we have a dog so a fence is kind of important to us but I've just been going around asking landlords if they can put it in because might as well the worst thing they can do is tell me no but I went to this house and I was supposed to go at 1230 and I was planning on going at 1230 and at 10 o'clock I get a call from the realtor just checking to make sure that I'm still confirming for going to this appointment which I appreciated and I said yes I am. And then at 1130 she calls me again and she was like or she texts me at 1130 and I don't have her number saved it's a random ass landlord and she texts me and it's like hey um, I'm here now if you want to come by. And I didn't answer because she just said, I'm here now if you want to come by. And I was like, I don't know who this is. I didn't think about checking the number and cross-referencing to see if it was the landlord or not. Didn't really care that much. And then a few minutes later, I get a phone call. And she's like, okay, I'm here if you want to come by. And I'm like, I was like, well, so sorry. But I'm working, so I'm not able to come by right now. I'll come by at 1230. So I get there. And she's sitting in her car, totally fine, no biggie. She comes and opened the door, which I was kind of like, okay, we sit at this at that lock box for like five minutes. I was kind of like, girly, you were here for like an hour. You could have gotten it done, but whatever, no big deal. Well, I walk in and I showed this picture on my story, but there is toilet paper just on the fucking counter of the bathroom. And I was just so annoyed because I was like, girl, you were sitting here waiting outside for over an hour like you could have just done a quick walk through I didn't even you know don't even expect like a sweep or anything just even a quick walk through to make sure that the trash is all thrown away and stuff like that because that wasn't the only trash either trash on the floor of the house and all around the backyard and things like that it's just freaking exhausting because it's like how according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development this rental business raked in an average of 11,000 over $11,000 per unit yearly for about 43.9 million housing units in 2015. So, that is um, an extra, like, such an impossible number. I mean, not really, but my brain doesn't like numbers. So, that's over $11,000 times 43.9 million. So, just think about that. You can figure that out in some other thing. But, (laughs) or on your own time but what does this business actually provide for us in return so we're gonna get a little numbery here so just stick with me i know you're like what the fuck madison this is loudmouth. we don't do numbers but we are gonna do numbers today um so the u.s census bureau's rental housing finance survey shows that landlords spend an average of 10 hours per month managing properties overall while half of them Spend just about three hours per month or less, and that is according to their own responses. So they they filled out a form and they said, "Yeah, I only go to the properties that I manage ten hours a month." Some said, "Oh, I only go to them three hours a month," which I know you're like, "Well, how much property work do you actually have?" You're like, "Oh my god." Well, actually, maybe you're not like that. I don't know, but. You don't, we don't even know the average, you know, amount of properties that these people had. I'm assuming it's well over two. So imagine 10 hours or less, three hours at your house, like working or actually caring for the property or actually doing work for the property. Just crazy. Cause that's not even going on site. That is just mainly like managing properties, getting work orders fixed, sending people out there to basically fix it for you. The average, average expenses that a landlord had to spend on, um, unit or yeah, per unit was 4,751 per unit. And most of it just covered property tax and business activity. So insurance, payroll, professional and legal services. So not even actually going back into the house, just legal covering, you know, how the house is taken care of or whatever in accounting terms you know what I'm saying (laughs) but maintenance grounds and landscaping only accounted for one thousand nine hundred and six dollars so think about your monthly rent or just actually your yearly rent because it's per unit so think about your yearly rent and then think about how much actually goes into fixing or taking care of the house physically not that much so this means that aside from the necessary cost to continue providing houses to a renter, the landlord collects, so we're going to take that 11232 per unit yearly number minus the one thousand $1,906 that they spend on actually taking care of the house, and that equals $9,326. So the landlord is collecting aside from the necessary costs to provide and continue providing housing, $9, or $9,326 a year per unit. Okay, so after settling property taxes, which are coincidentally also $1,906 per unit on average, the landlord is essentially siphoning $7,000. from the wages of each of their tenants. For $11,000 for $11,232 a U.S. tenant can expect 1,906 in maintenance and landscaping services on average in addition to not having to pay the property tax and that's it. In return for arranging those services, not even doing the work, the average landlord can expect to be free from the kinds of wage labor that most renters have no choice but to to perform if they wish to enjoy the privilege of a roof over their heads. And you guys should definitely check out the link below for the article that lists all this because I loved the guy. He was just so straightforward with everything, but... He talks about this way more in depth so please go check it out in the link in the show notes but basically we are paying for the landlords I mean we all knew this we all knew this of course we did but putting it in numbers just makes it absolutely insane so we are paying $11,232 annually for a house or whatever it is probably even more for most people Um, and we can only expect about $1,000 nine hundred and six dollars to come back into our house so not even to come back into our house i guess what i mean is to come back on making our house look good or making it livable that's how much the landlord spend on that the rest of it just goes to their goddamn pockets what i really liked about this guy is that he also provided with some um, solutions for this or some ways that we can make or make this non-existent hopefully but also just make this idea of landlording and landowning a lot better for people and a lot more ethical and things like that. So I'm going to provide like two of those options, but I think he also had a third one listed there and I would definitely recommend to go check out his super long explanations about them. Not super long, but longer explanations about them because he goes way more into depth than I do. But one of the more straightforward options that he supplies is that it would Be to transform private residential properties into housing cooperatives. So it's grouped by neighborhood, by building, or by community, kind of can be decided on. And instead of rents, funds for maintenance costs, which is the national average of $1,906, which you talked about earlier, would be pooled together through cooperatives and paid out as needed. And surpluses could be redistributed as dividends to residents, um, that, you know, incentivize efficient repairs or reinvested into improvements in the housing. So you kind of pull all your money together, which if you ever heard of a co-op, this is kind of the same idea of this. I know there are co-op like apartment buildings. So basically you pull all your money together um, and you use that money to then. So you own it all together. use that money to then, you know, get work orders fixed or whatever it is. And you kind of use it together. You don't really go through a landlord or anything like that. It's all just pulling money together. And it would be a certain amount um, that you cost. And instead of rent, you would just pay that cost. And then you guys could use surplus for extra, you know, work orders or improving or getting it back to the tenants. Um, There is, I believe, one of... An apartment building like this in Kansas City and if I'm not totally wrong I do believe that it is like a senior citizen facility not totally sure on that one definitely fact check but I do believe there is one kind of downtown a little bit off the plaza and it's this co-op idea so instead of paying a rent you're just paying all together and then you know if you need a work order fix or if they need to do maintenance they'll just pull out of that money um, so, this, and then if you have surpluses, you, you could go into getting a pool or community garden or, you know, different Wi Fi zones or utilities, things like that, amenities. So, that's one of the ideas that he suggests that I actually love. But another one is depending on how the transition to cooperative housing was handled, it might even be plausible to preserve the space jobs of small-time landlords as groundkeepers who are compensated for labor rather than property ownership. So keeping those small landlords to kind of run the co-op and be more of a manager, I guess, than a landlord. So that's one of these, um, he was saying, like just an add-on to the idea of housing cooperatives because people may be scared to just completely do rid of landlords, um, you know, just like they are of the police, even though there's nothing to be scared of, baby, we can do it. But, you know, this idea that these small-time property owners could then just go on being a manager and actually use it in a way that isn't just siphoning money back into their pockets. So the process of changing residents would mostly say the same, Except that the cooperative would manage applications rather than landlords, so a manager or cooperative as a whole, and you kind of have to be approved by the co-op. So He does state that, that although there are these great ideas and amazing things to do, he kind of basically just says the real problem here lies in overcoming the political obstacles to land reform. So though rental property owners make up just three percent of the population, the rental housing market is you know basically as big as the. US Defense Department. Um, so capitalism rears its ugly head once again, and we know that it's not it's not for the good of the world to be doing land owning and landlordship. It's the good of the government, it's the good of the economy. And if we aren't getting universal health care anytime soon, I would expect that universal housing would be even further on the list because... It's the way that these people just own properties and sell them and make money. It's exploitive. It's terrible. And it's awful that we just have to suffer through it. And especially going through houses on like Zillow and stuff. I'm like, oh my God, that's so terrible for so expensive. And I'm just like, they do it that way because they know. They know people are going to have to have somewhere to live. And that's what fucking sucks. It's all out of necessity because we couldn't just keep the land, keep our hands off the land and figure out a way to work together for it. But that is just not how the cookie crumbles. So now here we are forced to pay really, really high bills to people who don't care about if we live in the house or not because they're just looking at it for a paycheck. Um, And that is basically my episode on landlording. So it came from sketchy past, skill, still is very sketchy currently and probably has a good sketchy future in front of it. The good news and the hopeful news is that as we're kind of experiencing this labor revolution, hopefully soon we'll experience a housing revolution and we can re-envision the ways that to make the landlording process or to make living in a house work for us like it should have in the first place. So wish me luck on my house hunting endeavors. It's good to know where all this stuff comes from. Um so I don't feel insane for feeling like landlords don't do shit, which I know I don't. But it's just nice to know that there is there is a history of it and it's not just it didn't just come up overnight. It became unethical through many, many years of working on it. So, now we just need to tackle it down. Let's do it together. Fuck a landlord, am I right? Um so wish me luck on our house hunting journey. I hope that I can update you with good news soon. I will keep updating you on there and let me know if you want to hear more of my weird house going to house touring stories or anything like that. I can definitely update on Instagram. So go follow me on there at loudmouthpod. Keep up to date on everything. You can follow me on Twitter at loudmouth underscore pod. I have a Facebook now too. Also linked to the bio. Um, I have a website. Super, super exciting stuff on there. Make sure to go check it out um and everything like that if you have any suggestions for podcast episodes please feel free to email me loudmouthpod1 at gmail.com or reach out to me on any of my social media platforms that will be listed in the show notes so check me out everywhere you can I love you guys I will talk to you next week have a good rest of your week and if you're trying to find a house like me I wish you the luck the best of luck (laughs) okay talk to you guys next week bye (laughs)